Part four of The Road Past Kennesaw, The Atlanta Campaign of 1864 by Richard Manning McMurray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part four. Johnston removed from command. The Confederate government had been displeased by Johnston's conduct of the campaign. President Jefferson Davis and other civilian officials had hoped that the Confederates would be able to regain Tennessee, or at least to draw Sherman into a situation in which a severe defeat would be inflicted upon him. Instead, after ten weeks of campaigning, Johnston was backed up against Atlanta, and there was no assurance that he would even try to hold that important center. These circumstances led Davis to remove Johnston from command of the army and to replace him with John B. Hood, who was promoted to the temporary rank of full general. Davis' replacement of Johnston with Hood is one of the most controversial acts of the war. Relations between the president and Johnston had not been friendly since a dispute over the general's rank in 1861. Disagreements over strategy and tactics, as well as the personalities of the two men, exacerbated matters in 1862 and 1863. During Johnston's tenure as commander of the Army of Tennessee, the situation became worse as communications between the two broke down almost completely. Davis promoted officers in the Army without consulting Johnston, who maneuvered in the field without informing the government of his plans and operations in any meaningful detail. Davis saw that Johnston had yielded much valuable territory to the enemy. Important officials in the government began to urge that the general be removed from command. On July 9, Davis sent his military adviser, General Braxton Bragg, to report on the situation in Georgia. Bragg visited Johnston, learned nothing of the general's plans, and reported that it appeared the city would be abandoned. Other evidence brought to the president's attention, such as Johnston's suggestion that prisoners held in South Georgia be sent to safer points, seemed to confirm Bragg's assessment that Atlanta would not be defended. On July 16, David telegraphed Johnston, I wish to hear from you as to present situation and your plan of operations so specifically as will enable me to anticipate events. The general's reply of the same date read in part, As the enemy has double our numbers, we must be on the defensive. My plan of operations must therefore depend upon that of the enemy. It is mainly to watch for an opportunity to fight to advantage. We are trying to put Atlanta in condition to be held for a day or two by the Georgia militia, that army movements may be freer and wider. This vague reply did not satisfy Davis, and on July 17, he issued the order that removed Johnson from command. In great haste, Johnston wrote out an order relinquishing his position and thanking the soldiers for their courage and devotion. By the afternoon of the 18th, he had left Atlanta and the Army of Tennessee in the none-too-steady hands of John Bell Hood. Much debate has swirled around Davis's decision— Johnston and his partisans have argued that the general's removal made inevitable the loss of Atlanta, the re-election of Lincoln, and the defeat of the Confederacy. They contend that had Johnston remained in command, the city would have been held, or that if it were surrendered, the army at least would not have been weakened and would have continued as an effective unit. 
hood and davis maintained that johnston's long retreat had demoralized the army that johnston would not have held atlanta and that the confederacy's only chance for success lay in replacing johnston with a bold commander who would strike sherman a blow that would send the northerners reeling back to chattanooga most historians have tended to accept johnston's position there can be no definite answer of course but it does seem that johnston would have evacuated the city rather than lose a large portion of his army fighting for it this would have saved the army but coming after the long retreat from dalton might have so demoralized it that desertion and disgust would have ended its career as an effective fighting force if the retention of atlanta was essential to the life of the confederacy president davis seems justified in his decision to remove johnston it was the confederacy's misfortune that no bold intelligent and lucky general was available to take his place but one thing was certain with hood leading the southerners the pattern of the campaign would change in the ranks historians have long been in the habit of dealing with the past as if it were nothing more than the story of a small number of great men who moved about shaping the world as they saw fit in reality leaders are not long successful without followers the great mass of the common people who do the work bear the burdens and suffer the consequences of their leaders policies the Civil War offers a unique opportunity to study the common people of America, because during that conflict, large numbers of people were directly involved in the great events of the times. For most of them, the war was the single most important event of their lives. Consequently, they wrote about it in great detail in their letters and diaries, and saved these documents after the conflict ended it is therefore possible to see the civil war armies as groups of humans not masses of automata the men who followed sherman johnston and hood in eighteen sixty four left behind information that adds much to an understanding of the campaign records kept by the federal government show that the typical northern soldier was five feet eight and one quarter inches tall and weighed a hundred and forty three and a half pounds Doubtless the Southerners were of a similar stature. The same records also indicate that before the war, 48% of the men had been farmers. Among the Confederates, the percentage of farmers was more than half. Relatively few emigrants served in either Western Army. Perhaps one-fifth to one-sixth of the men were of foreign birth. More than half the units in Sherman's armies were from Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio iowa kentucky missouri and wisconsin also furnished large contingents such eastern states as new york connecticut new jersey and pennsylvania were represented but their contributions were small more than two-thirds of the units in the southern army were from tennessee alabama mississippi and georgia other states with significant numbers of troops in the confederate ranks were texas arkansas and louisiana Alabama, Kentucky, Missouri, and Tennessee were represented by units on both sides. Most of the men in the armies that struggled for Atlanta had volunteered for military service in 1861 or 1862. By 1864, they had become veterans, inured to the hardships of military life. Nevertheless, they found the Atlanta campaign a severe trial. 
unlike many civil war military operations in which fighting occurred at infrequent intervals the struggle for atlanta was virtually a continuous battle sometimes as at resaca almost all of the opposing forces were engaged at other times action was limited to the desultory firing of skirmishers but only on rare occasions were the soldiers able to escape the sounds and dangers of combat the weather, whether a freak cold wave in mid-June, the unusually heavy rains of late May and June, or the normal heat of July and August, affected every man, and often hampered troop movements as well. Frequently, units on the march lost men who could not stand the pace. The soldiers would drop by the roadside until they had recovered their strength, then move on to overtake their comrades. For example, the heat on July 12 was so bad that only 50 of the men in an Illinois regiment could keep up on a three-mile march. When the armies were in fortified positions, as they were at Kennesaw Mountain, the men often stretched blankets or brush across the trenches to protect themselves from the sun. On rainy days, fence rails or rocks in the trenches served to keep soldiers out of the water clothing was also a problem as a rule sherman's men were better supplied than their opponents but the wool uniforms they wore were unsuited to the hot georgia summer the confederates had almost no new clothing after the campaign began and their uniforms deteriorated rapidly a texan summed up their plight in early june when he wrote in this army one hole in the seat of the breeches indicates a captain two holes a lieutenant and the seat of the pants all out indicates that the individual is a private rarely did the men of either army have a chance to wash and almost all of them were affected by body lice and other vermin a sense of humor helped them to survive these trials soldiers who were pinned down in a water-filled trench by enemy fire consoled themselves with the thought that they were at least drowning the lice the federals complained that the retreating southerners infested the country with lice that attacked the advancing northerners other pests included chiggers ticks snakes scorpions flies and ants soldiers in both armies suffered from a shortage of food and had no scruples about supplementing their rations with whatever could be taken from the surrounding farms and homes corn pork chickens geese hams potatoes apples and onions disappeared as the armies moved through a neighborhood wild berries and fish were also eaten nevertheless there were many times when food was in short supply one federal wrote most of the time we are on the move and cannot get such as is fit for a man to eat the atlanta campaign like many of the later civil war campaigns saw the development of trench warfare on a large scale protecting works were built from loose rocks fence rails tombstones or even the bodies of dead comrades by the third or fourth week of the campaign both sides had mastered the art of field fortification a trench with the dirt piled on the side toward the enemy and surmounted by a head log under which were small openings for firing such works left little but the eyes exposed to enemy fire in front of the trenches the underbrush would be cleared away and young trees cut so that they fell toward the foe the trees were left partly attached to the stump so that they could not be dragged aside 
Telegraph wire was sometimes strung between them to create further obstacles. From behind their fortifications, soldiers could pour out such a volume of fire that there was no chance for a successful massed attack, unless complete surprise could be achieved or overwhelming numbers brought against a weak part of the enemy's line. Much of the fighting was therefore done by small patrols and snipers, especially in heavily wooded country such as the area around New Hope Church and Kennesaw Mountain. The soldier who died in battle could expect no elaborate funeral. Usually the armies were too busy to do more than bury the dead as quickly as possible, and they would probably be put in a mass grave near the place where they had fallen. Later, the bodies might be exhumed and moved to a cemetery, where they would be listed as unidentified and reinterred in a numbered but nameless grave. The soldier who was wounded or who was disabled by disease suffered greatly. As a rule, the northerner who was sent to an army hospital fared better than his opponent because the Federals were better equipped and provisioned than the Confederates. Field hospitals treated men whose wounds were either very slight or too serious to permit further movement. Others were sent by wagon and rail to hospitals in the rear. Rome, Chattanooga, and Knoxville for the Federals, Atlanta and the small towns along the railroad south of that city for the Southerners. Transportation in crowded hospital wagons over rutted roads or in slow hospital trains was an indescribable horror. The hospitals themselves were better, but by modern standards, uncomfortable and dirty. For painful operations, northern soldiers often enjoyed the blessing of chloroform. Many southerners, however, especially those in the hospitals and smaller towns, frequently endured major surgery without the benefit of any opiate except perhaps whiskey. In some cases, the hospitals echoed with the screams of men undergoing amputations or such treatments as that, calling for the use of nitric acid to burn gangrene out of their wounds. No precise figures as to the number of men who were killed, wounded, or sick during the campaign are available. However, it is known that for the war as a whole, disease killed about twice as many men as did the weapons of the enemy. Sickness brought on by exposure and unsanitary camps undoubtedly accounted for many lives among the soldiers in Georgia. Diseases that were especially common were smallpox, scurvy, dysentery, diarrhea, also known as diarrhea, and the Tennessee quickstep, and various types of fevers. Religion provided a great source of comfort for many soldiers. Chaplains accompanied both armies, but were too few to serve all the troops. Some chaplains preferred to spend the campaign in the rear, where they would be safe, while others, of far more influence with the men, braved hardships and dangers with the units they served. At least three of the latter group were killed in battle during the campaign, either while helping the wounded or fighting in the ranks. When chaplains were not available, the men sometimes organized and conducted their own religious services. On the other hand, many soldiers ignored religion altogether and continued such sinful practices as cursing, drinking, and gambling. Nevertheless, what one soldier called the missionary influence of the enemy's cannon and the constant presence of death and suffering led many to seek comfort in religion. 
throughout the campaign when the armies were in a relatively stable situation the men sometimes agreed not to shoot at one another instead they would meet between the lines to talk swim drink bathe enjoy the sun pick blackberries exchange newspapers swap northern coffee for southern tobacco play cards wrestle eat sing rob the dead and argue politics officers on both sides tried to prohibit this fraternization but the men in the ranks had the good sense to ignore their orders these informal truces would usually be respected by all and when they were over fighting would not resume until every man had gotten back to his own trenches much of the tragedy of the war was reflected in a letter written by a wisconsin soldier on june twenty fourth we made a bargain with them that we would not fire on them if they would not fire on us and they were as good as their word it seemed too bad that we have to fight men like that now these southern soldiers seem just like our own boys only they are on the other side they talk about their people at home their mothers and fathers and their sweethearts just as we do among ourselves however regardless of the soldiers feelings about each other during those times of truce the war was being run by the generals and the generals said it must go on end of part four